Hi, we're here with the second ever Ethics Podcast. I'm Dr. George Sakaridis. I'm here with Dr. Gregory Peterson. And we have a special guest today, Dr. Nicole Hassoun from Binghamton University in New York, professor of philosophy. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Hassoun and finding out what she's doing in the world of ethics and philosophy, and hopefully you learn something and uh, just have an enjoyable time. But I'm going to pass it over to Greg here, and he's going to give a more formal introduction. Thank you, George. It's great to be here again for our second podcast. Today that we're recording happens to be the day of our International Human Rights Conference here at STSU, and Dr. Hassoun is our second annual bioethics lecturer. So we started last year with Carl Elliott from the University of Minnesota, who talked about whistleblowers in medicine in the Tuskegee syphilis case, which is one of the most famous, infamous, really, cases of, of medical malpractice in, in the U.S. So Dr. Hassoun is with us today for a little bit before she gives her plenary. Just a first question. Why don't you start by just sharing a bit about how you came to be where you are now and how you came to be interested in the topic of health as a human right? All right. So I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And I've been to South Dakota before for some car trips through the hills of the western part of the state as I grew up in Colorado. And I got my degree at the University of Arizona, my PhD, and then a job at Carnegie Mellon and eventually ended up uh, in Binghamton. And so I started working on health and human rights through my dissertation and what came out of that. I, I spent some time in the Philippines working with the Philippine Community Organizer Society, just basically going around asking a lot of really annoying questions. And and in that trip, I met some some people who were living in, you know, really tragic circumstances, who were, you know, living in garbage dumps and picking up garbage to survive. And so, you know, I was thinking at the time, should I go into uh, philosophy of science and epistemology, or should I do um, ethics and political philosophy? And I ended up deciding that it was a little more important to focus on on health and human rights than on on questions about whether or not I was a brain in a vat. Though those are interesting questions too. So, and and how did you end up in the Philippines? If sure, so. I guess I had applied for a Fulbright, which I didn't get, and I had made some contacts with this Philippine Community Organizers Society. I had a friend who was Filipino, and they were willing to give me um, a little bit of office space and, and introduce me through their network of people working uh, in NGOs throughout the Philippines. And so I just decided to do it anyway and go go on my own. And I think it was a very unusual proposal for a philosopher to go spend a summer in the Philippines. And uh, and I learned a lot. I just kind of walked into the IMF, walked into the World Bank, walked into the Department of Agriculture, hung out in the garbage dumps, and um, basically learned as much as I could about international development in, in that summer. Actually, I kind of want to affirm that because I think that's a good lesson for young scholars and students out there that sometimes it's better just to take things on yourself if you believe in a project and not necessarily wait for someone to give you permission to do that. So you are currently working on a book that's under contract with Oxford University Press. So why don't we just begin a little bit by talking about what the book project is and how it relates to your your current interests. Sure. So my first book was on globalization and global justice. And so after going to the Philippines, I I wrote I wrote this book about what we owe to the global poor uh, as as people who are in developed countries. Um, but if you're concerned about world poverty, then I think you have um, real reason to care about global health. And so the second book is about global health. But it came, it kind of came, comes out of the first 
book project. So let me just tell you a little bit about that. And then I'll tell you about the second. So in the first book, I, I look at the case for free trade and foreign aid in light of um, my arguments that we should or that we have significant obligations to aid the global poor. A lot of people argue that what we need is free trade and not foreign aid. But I think that 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 free trade can be beneficial for people, but that free trade isn't always fair and that we need to constrain free trade in some cases and, and supplement it with foreign aid. And so the final part of the book argues uh, that we should consider other kinds of, of ways of making trade fair. And one proposal is something like fair trade in pharmaceutical and biotechnology. And so the idea is to have a rating system for pharmaceutical companies' attempts to extend access on essential medicines around the world, looking at their medicines health impacts and then incentivizing them to do more to promote global health. And that's really the topic of the second book. So the first part of that book starts by arguing for human rights health. And I argue that it's really important to protect everybody's ability to live a minimally good life or a dignified life. And that generates significant obligations on, on pharmaceutical companies and on people in developing countries as well as on states. And then out of that argument, I talk about the human right to health's role in national and international affairs. And that's what I'll talk about tonight. So the idea is that the human right to health should inspire us to, to stake our claims and find ways of helping people meet their basic health needs, even when that seems like it might be impossible. And so I defend what I call the virtue of creative resolve, this commitment to kind of thinking creatively about what might appear to be a tragic situation. And then consider some proposals for positive change that are kind of along that lines. And one is this global health impact idea. And so so when we talk about issues of global health, if you turn on the television and by chance if someone's talking about that, it'll be someone who's a policy expert or an economist or a medical professional of some sort. Uh, so you as a philosopher are working on this. So that kind of brings up the question, what does philosophy bring to the table on this sort of issue? What's what's distinctive about philosophy's contribution? That's great. Well, so first I, I say should say, you know, I'm not a very typical philosopher in some ways. I've kind of gone around doing qualitative research in the Philippines and then I've also worked a lot with data, so I have a scientific part of the Global Health Impact Project, which is actually evaluating the health consequences of medicines around the world, and that project launched the World Health Organization in 2015. But the... but. But the philosophy, I think, is really essential. It's essential to the science, and it's essential to explaining why it is that we should care about these problems in the first place. So if you want to say there is a legal right to health, I mean, that's just a fact, right? But is that right justified, right? Do people have to respect the legal right to health? And should we, as individuals, as members of society, as, say, people in charge of a pharmaceutical company, do anything to actually promote that right? And so that making that case, I think it's a moral argument, and that's where the philosophy comes in. I think it also comes into the science, because when you want to develop a measure of something like health impact, well, maybe you need to know what health is, and maybe you need to know what a good measure of health looks like. And again, defining what is good here is, in some sense, a normative question. So philosophy is really important. I think it's important practically, and I think it's important to have good theories to kind of to guide empirical research. And uh, so just to mention the, the working title of your book, in case we missed it. So the working title of the, the book coming out or you're working on is, is Global Health Impact, Extending Access on Essential Medicines. And you've now mentioned a couple of times this uh, Global Health Impact Project and the index associated with it. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it came to be? Okay, yeah. Um, so the Global 
Health Impact Project, again, it's an initiative to extend access on essential medicines around the world by evaluating the consequences of medicines for global health. The thought is that if we know, say, where we're succeeding in the world in addressing major health problems like HIV, malaria, and TB, and where we're failing to address those problems adequately, then we can better target resources and meet needs and uh, if we can evaluate uh, pharmaceutical companies, medicines, say, consequences for the, the, these health problems, then we can potentially even rank those companies based on those health consequences, which opens the door to incentivizing companies to have a larger health impact. So, you know, one day a couple of aisles worth of stuff in your grocery store could potentially uh, have something like a fair trade label for health that would provide further incentives for companies to have more health impact. And what that means is to save more lives and alleviate more disability. Is there anything like kind of in the works in that regard, like as far as a label for health? You know, at this point, we're, I, I'm just writing the book about it. So we're working on developing the index, expanding it over time across diseases, um, addressing some of the criticisms we had on the beta and then hopefully we'll actually launch a much more comprehensive index that looks not only at patent holding companies, but at manufacturers and distributors of essential medicines as well. And, and potentially even parts of the pharmaceutical supply chain that include things like Global Fund or PEPFAR's contributions. Then when we have the scientific kind of basis uh, locked down, we'll probably have some launch conferences. So that seems like a good idea with civil society. Then it is something that we could we could potentially do. It wouldn't be, I think, too hard to get a grocery store to do something like a randomized controlled trial of consumers' willingness to purchase things with these labels. There's been similar trials of fair trade labels and things. And so the book actually talks about that and, and developing kind of a game plan, I guess, for potentially having a label out there, but I don't think it has to have a label. But you know, there's a lot of different kind of proposals in the book and and ways that this could be information could be useful as well. So um, one idea is universities actually license out a lot of the technology that companies rely on. So uh, they create that technology and then companies acquire it. If universities made it a condition of the sale of their licenses that companies holding that technology had to meet certain standards to say be global health impact certified or whatever. Um, that could greatly influence how the pharmaceutical industry uh, functions because they get about a third of their inputs from uh, universities at this point. Also, socially responsible investment companies are probably already paying attention to this information given that it's on some companies' websites, or at least they could be in the future. And so I think the you know the hope is that this at least reorients the discussion, reorients the discussion in a way that um, can bring more attention to, you know, where are we succeeding? Where are we not succeeding? What are companies doing? What, what are other organizations doing to actually better promote health? Well, actually, I don't know about the listeners, but that's pretty exciting to me, actually. There's a lot of, a lot of possibilities. So I'm, I'm kind of anxious to see where you go with that. So maybe you could say about the need for this sort of label, the inequities that you perceive in access to to medical care and pharmaceuticals globally and how this can make an impact for those those individuals. Sure. There's millions of people who lack access to essential medicines around the world. So millions are suffering and dying from malaria, TB, HIV, and other neglected diseases around the world. And while it's quite possible for uh, for most people in, in developing countries to receive treatment for 
these problems, even when medicines are available relatively inexpensively, it may be very difficult for people who make, I don't know, a few dollars a day to even get to the health clinics that they have to get to to access these medicines. And so, you know, more access to essential medicines is a key important, I think, contribution, but it's not enough. And, and there's a lot more to, you know, global poverty and health than that. You know, people need clean water, they need decent health care much more broadly they need education and and so you know i don't want to say this is in any way like a panacea going to solve everybody's uh, health problems but i think you know the fact that there are people who but for uh, those medicines might go on to live long and healthy lives gives us a really strong reason to care about it so in the label how would that make it more accessible good so the thought is well if companies want to be highly rated right because they can make a profit with the label they can capture i don't know two percent of consumer sales in a two billion dollar market for over-the-counter analgesics or whatever like pain medicine then that gives them two billion dollars worth of incentive to create drugs or extend access on drugs that have a greater health impact so well, how do they get the label well it's because their drugs are having the greatest impact around the world. They're saving the most lives and alleviating the most disabilities. So if they can create new medicines, other companies can create new medicines that are more impactful than they could potentially get the label. So it creates a competition amongst pharmaceutical companies to increase their standards, right? Insofar as this is kind of valuable to them financially and reputationally. And we have some preliminary lab evidence that people do pay attention to this. It does affect brand perception. Then I think that provides companies with a reason to do whatever gets some health impact, you know, labeled. And that would be, again, extend access on essential medicines. It could be even, you know, creating new diagnostic testing so their current medicines can be used more widely. Or if people would survive more with better access to clean water or something, then, you know, when they're receiving treatment, potentially treatment impact would go up. And again, they might benefit if they could help solve some kinds of infrastructure problems. At least that's the hope in the long term. At this point, the index, I don't think, would register all of those small uh, things that companies are doing, but it pays attention to the need for the medicines, access to them, and their effectiveness. So if companies can you know, address greater problems, if they can do so more, more broadly or more effectively, then they'll get a higher uh, score on the index. So you mentioned earlier that it sounds like at least one company has kind of bought into this. What has been your sense of reception so far are you anticipating this is the sort of thing that pharmaceutical companies, once they, they hear about this, they'll jump on the bandwagon, they'll see dollar signs because of the, the benefits of labeling? Or is this something that they might be inclined to push back on? It's another sort of ethical requirement or hoop that they have to jump through. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know. So when we launched the first index, I was afraid. <laughs> I was you know, a little bit. But it turned out that, you know, the companies at the top of the index loved it. And the companies at the bottom were like, oh, my gosh, I don't know. You didn't tell me about this. I'm not going to comment or like, I don't like this or something. But we didn't talk to them. We don't talk to pharmaceutical companies all that much. We we had to invite them to the first conference. It was the condition of, of getting the money to the conference. I think, you know, companies are very different in how they're going to react to it. But overall, I would say, you know, people are interested. You know, pharmaceutical co companies do call me up or people at them do call me up and say, hey, we want to do something similar within our company. 
It's also, you know, useful for advocacy for organizations like the TB Alliance or the World Health Organization. So some people are using this to like potentially um, look at where they need to target their resources or make a case for getting more resources or something. And I think that's that's interesting. What's interesting, I mean, public health wise about the data is you can actually see, you know, which countries were succeeding in and which ones you're feeling in. So that that's important if you say well why are we having a, a good impact on this country but on its neighbor which is pretty much identical and can we address those differences so i'm actually more becoming more interested in that kind of public health side of it over time um so for the for the average citizen why is something like this important and how can someone get involved so either in your project or or maybe a project like it i mean it's a very amazing thing that you're doing here building an index that has impacts potentially globally that affect people's lives and so if, if someone thinks this is a good idea what, what can they do well so our lab is full of students at binghamton university but in in some cases we've had students from other universities participate with us for several years so you know, if, if people want to, they have particular skills, they're good at marketing, web development, whatever, they can definitely contact us. And we, we love that. It's great if people want to get involved. I think that it's a little bit hard for me to say what the average citizen should do. But you know, if there's a global health impact on your product in your grocery store one day, maybe you should pick it up. <laughs> and other projects. I mean, there's tons of organizations that are doing great things out there. And a lot of them could use help from people with a wide variety of skill sets. So one of the coolest things for me about the project over the years has been just seeing that, you know, learning about people, learning about what kinds of things they're good at and interesting, interested in, because we found, you know, we work, we have four or five different teams now. We have web development, modeling, grant writing, you know, outreach and, and so forth. And some, some general research teams and each each of those teams just let students kind of shine in, in what they do. And so I learn a lot about, oh, that's what web development does. Or yeah, volunteer. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. We appreciate your coming all the way from New York to visit with us. We will be having the lecture tonight a little bit later. For our listeners, uh, you can check out both Cole's uh, previous book and her current text. And so thank you very much, Nicole. Thank you very much uh, for being on the podcast. And uh, I want to remind our listeners that you can follow the South Dakota State University Ethics Lab at facebook.com backslash South Dakota State University Ethics Lab. Uh, but thank you again for being here. I think this was a really great conversation. And uh, I hope our listeners uh, also find it very interesting. So until next time, thanks and goodbye. <laughs>